Hello, this is the Laugh Podcast. We want to thank everyone who has downloaded or listened to the show. We appreciate your support and our quest to become Podcast of the Month. Congratulations goes to the winner of PodcastLand.com's Podcast of the Month, the outstanding radio theater of the mind, Wolf359. Please check them out on iTunes. As first runner-up, we will assume the role of Podcast of the Month if they struggle to live up to the expectations required of the position. In the meantime, we will continue to strive to bring you excellence in podcasting. Remember, we don't have to be your favorite podcast of all time. We only have to be your favorite podcast of the month. Email us with your comments at thelaughpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us at thelaughpodcast or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelaughpodcast. We want to thank you again for listening, and we hope that you enjoyed today's review of Bronnie and the Manyabala's Love Hunter. Flying Bull Productions presents Laugh, Literature, and Film. All right, welcome to the good stuff. Yeah, the Laugh Podcast. Mister Two Frames is my co-host here. He's with me today. Pleasure to be here as always. On the L train, we're really enthusiastic about this week's review of Brane and the Manyabala's Love Hunter. Yeah, we are. I know I am. This podcast is what three weeks in the making. Yeah, we've been really working on it really hard. We've yeah. worked as hard on this podcast as we have on anything else in our lives. <laughs> Hopefully my wife's not listening to this. <laughs> Mr. Two Frames, you're a modestly talented guy. All right. Like all human beings, you have goals and dreams of your own, right? Yeah. Big dreams. For example, you strive to be the best podcaster ever. Now, my question is this. How much would you be willing to give up to reach that goal? Everything. Really? Now, I really hope my wife's not listening. <laughs> uh Let's say in order to produce and publish this podcast, or your own personal Mr. Bull, Mr. Two Frames, you just call it One Frame, would you be willing to, if you want to do and publish your own podcast, would you be willing to move to a foreign country, work difficult jobs at all hours, day and night, and make a, a great number of personal sacrifices in order to reach that goal? That's a big ask. But you understand that impulse, right? I think I do. I think I do. As I look forward, there is only you and me. Uh, what can we do for you today? I would like to have a book studio for a session. I have an idea. You sing me one of your songs and you cheer me up and I'll tip you a hundred bucks. hundred bucks? hundred bucks. You serious? Like a heart attack. Yeah, that was the trailer of Love Hunter, written, produced, and directed by Nemanja and Brane Bala, two Serbian-American filmmakers. Their uh, critically acclaimed film stars Serbian rock star Milan Moomin as Milan Moomin. His co-stars are Jelena Stupjanin, his girlfriend, and Eleanor Hutchins, who plays Kim, another love interest, someone whom he hunts. Uh, He's hunting for love. The film chronicles a month in the life of singer-songwriter Milan Moomin, frontman of the seminal Serbian rock band Love Hunters, during the 90s. Now, years later, we find Milan driving a taxi in New York City and cobbling together funds for a studio session to make his dream album to be recorded and released in America. When his bass guitar player suddenly quits, he finds a talented but prickly replacement and possible love interest in a free-spirited guitarist named Kim. Just as rehearsals start to pick up steam, Milan's girlfriend, Layla, arrives with a very different plan for their future. She wants him to come home to Serbia, where his reputation will let him be anything he wishes, but Milan is determined to make his recording in America at any cost. I really enjoyed this film. I did, too. I enjoyed it for several reasons. What was one of them? Well, the first, I think, is the is the big on-screen presence and personality of Milan Moomin, the, the lead actor. Um, there's a gruff, gregarious, gifted and engaging songsmith who occupies 
the majority of space in the film and on the screen. I think his I admire his his the character's single mindedness as much as I admire the actor's likability. And uh, I like how the, the those two things go hand in hand as he attempts to reach his goal of cutting an album in America. I think it's interesting that he he feels that he needs to be he needs more than just himself to reach that goal. So he has to reach out for other things um, in order to achieve his own personal goal. And that's that's sort of where the the Kim character gets involved. Um, but I like this the themes and the ideas and the personality of this Milan Moomin guy. What'd you think of that guy? I thought he was great. And to me, it's really interesting. He's an untrained actor and yet he's the star of this film. We don't see that very often. I think the last time we've discussed an untrained actor on our show was when we talked about the movie Joe, where we highlighted the amateur acting performance of Gary uh, Pluter playing <laughs> Ty Sheridan's father. Wade. It's, Gary, it's Gary Poulter. Poulter. Yeah, have some respect for the dead, Mr. Paul. <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah, but it, it's interesting. Why would you pick um, an amateur to come in and star in your film? In both films, Joe and Love Hunter, these roles are critical to the success of the film. Well, the filmmakers mentioned how they met Milan, or they saw Milan in New York City when they were all living there, and they recognized him as a musician that they knew from Serbia. They developed a close relationship with him and shot a music video and realized that his struggles were similar to their own because it touches on those universal themes of following your dreams and setting dreams or setting goals and trying to reach those, those goals. We interviewed Nemanja Bala last week on the night prior to his Washington, D.C. premiere. So we're speaking uh, this evening with Nemanja Bala about his movie Love Hunter. Uh, this is a wonderful movie. I actually really liked it. I don't. I don't want you to be offended, but I was surprised by how much I liked it because uh, I really. I don't really like musicals that much. Ah, uh, yes. Technically, this isn't really a musical, but music plays a big part in it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the your this film, your Love Hunter? Uh huh. Well, it's interesting um, that you mentioned it's a musical, but maybe not really. You know, uh, I wanted, I always uh, wanted to make this film about um, this guy, uh, Milan Mumin, who who was a pretty, pretty famous rock star back in Serbia uh, during the 90s. He was sort of an important figure because he was the only person who sang in English. And, uh, and you know, uh, 90s in Serbia, it was a very turbulent time, so... So it sort of meant a lot for the young generations. It's, uh, uh, you know, I would compare it to, you know, kind of like what punk meant in, in Great Britain, in, in, you know, at that time. And, you know, he had that kind of power. And then he and I, we actually come from the same hometown in Serbia, but we only met there once. And then we met in New York many, many years later, probably 10 years later. And he was driving a cab. And I was kind of surprised why he was doing that, but uh, uh, but then I got to know him, and uh, and out of our friendship came up came out this idea to make a film about uh, the cab driver um, who who tries to record his first American album and really uses his his cab driving to finance the film. So so. I knew that there would be a lot of music in it because I would just naturally follow the main character, the way he thinks and what he does, you know? So mm-hmm. so I knew that, that the musical would just naturally come out of that. But I don't think I ever set up to to make a, a musical, you know? Right. Yeah. So the, the, the scene that opens the movie then is, is straight from uh, your real experience with him. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, something like that, actually, yes. I mean, you can, you know, I wanted to have that feeling that, and this happened to him many, many times, where somebody would just run into him on the street and be like, hey, what are you doing here? Or, or, or often he would, uh, people would get into the cab and recognize it, you know? I love the way that you start that. I, we often get a comment that it's the shortest backstory ever in history of film. 
which I kind of find very funny, but... <laughs> well, it actually, it does a pretty good job of uh, establishing that character and the set. Yeah, it's everything that you would need. And I realized, I, I smiled yeah. right away. I, I knew that I was smiling, and I was like, wow, this is going to be, this That's is going to be good. pretty interesting. So yeah. it kind of... Well, yeah. yeah, you have him get recognized, and then right away uh, in the next scene, he's driving a woman, and she doesn't know who he is, and he has to win her over with his music. And I thought, wow, you're really going for it right away. Exactly. You know, when we when we um, when we wrote the script, and this was a, a fully written script, although you know there was some improvisation within it, uh, we knew that that first sequence was really crucial. Exactly because of that, you know, that we're going to be actually more in the shoes of this woman who doesn't know anything about this guy. And he, as you said, needs to, to win her over. And, and I kind of feel that that sequence really needed to work if the film was going to work. You have to get the audience right there, and I, I think you do. I, I was also real impressed with how you shot those scenes. Yeah. Well, that was, you know, our, our crew was, was incredibly small, uh, but very um, skilled. We, um, um, our DP, Bogdan Napetri, who is, in fact, a director himself, he made a wonderful film called um, Outbound, is an um, English title, but uh, perfect in um, French and Romanian. He's originally from Romania. We all went to uh, Columbia Film School together, so, so, so we knew each other from those days which made it really um, easy to work together. And and it was only because of that that it was possible to make it with the documentary crew, you know. Uh, it was often shooting at night, and, and Bogdan didn't really have a focus puller or, or anybody to help him. So we, we were literally shooting in the cabs, you know. In an article written by uh, Coco Dowling in the Columbia Spectator, uh-huh. Your brother mentioned uh, he he mentioned the intimacy of that of that filming, uh-huh. um, and that it was a very conscious decision. I know you had to get the camera pretty close to him. Uh-huh. But Milan, his personality fills the screen with you know he he's a pretty big character to begin with. Exactly. But you, I think you mentioned that um, you you had a a vision that you wanted to communicate with the visual language of the camera. I'd like you to to talk about that a little bit. Uh-huh. Well, exactly. I mean, we, we knew that, that a big part of this film is going to be the, the cab rides, you know. And, and for me, it's always, I always prefer when the camera is at the place, at least in these kinds of films, you know, kind of personal, intimate films, that it's placed at a place where you could physically be as an audience member. You know, so we decided. All right, well, it just makes sense that that's the that's the passenger seat, right? And you're sitting next to a cab driver. So very early on, we decided that that's going to be the the discipline of the of the film language. You know, we're not going to put the camera in in front or have any fancy driving shots. That's going to be how we do it when we are in the cab. You know, and then and then um, that created a certain level of reality, you know, which we then carried over to, to shooting all the other scenes. And what became interesting is is when we shot scenes between Milan and Yelena or Milan and Eleanor Hutchins, who plays Kemp, you know, we would shoot them in, in sort of two shots and then would do a little more coverage, shooting singles and, and all of that. And then in the editing, we actually realized that Whenever we try to cut in, the film just didn't work because you're breaking that um, reality that you are creating, you know. So we kept most of the shots uh, fluid, one takes as much as we could, and that's something that we worked we we worked on that during the shooting. I mean, there's obviously a couple of very long takes uh, because of that reason. Yeah, it really increases the intimacy of the film. Yeah, and and it it helps you to connect to those characters. Yeah, it does. And but even like every song seems to have its own style of the way it's shot. It, it you, does. You try to yeah. mix it up and keep it original for the audience. It does. And 
Exactly, and and that's something we also knew. You know, if you if you kind of look at where these songs are in the film, you know, they come sort of at the end of every major sequence, let's say, and and something really changes with our main character when the song comes. You know, so we use his songs to express really his inner life and, and his emotions, and and we just find it. For me, that was the most interesting part when we were first writing the scripts, you know, to 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 use his lyrics and songs to kind of complete the scenes and create an emotional map of the character and create the arc of the character. So that was that was extremely interesting for me in, in, in as a screenwriter. And then once we got to shoot it, we knew that, that to to make it interesting, every every musical number should be different. You know, so so, and hopefully we succeeded in that. I think you did. I really do. Okay. When you were shooting the film and you're having to make these directorial decisions, um, how did you manage that? Working with your brother, who co-directed this film with you, how yeah. was that experience? Well, you know, we we've we've always written scripts together and worked on other films together, and. Um, and we would often, the way we work is that we, you know, even from writing the script, let's say I would write a draft, I would give it to him, he would rewrite it, and we would just go back and forth. And in terms of uh, uh, directing, when we were directing, we were, you know, because we sort of know what we want going into shooting the scene. You know, we would just first talk about the best camera angles and everything, and then and then one of us would, let's say, talk to, 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 to the actors to get what we want, and then we sort of consult with each other, you know, do you think that was good? You, what else do you think we can get? How about we try this? And it actually, I think it, it works great for us because it, it's just like having two brains, you know, and, and it's just having an extra, extra pair of eyes to, to, to get another idea to. And which, which honestly, when you're shooting, uh, you know, small films like this, it, quite helpful because you are dealing with, with other things in, in production as well. So 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 for us, it's, it's a very uh, natural way of working, in fact. You keep saying this is a small film, but when I watched it, I was really blown away by the quality right. of um, right. the film. Or I guess I shouldn't call it film. You shot this with a Red Epic, which is a digital camera, correct? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah Red Epic is, is digital. It's a uh, it's a pretty, uh, you know, it's a pretty uh, high-resolution camera, and it gives, you know, the image. And it's used in Hollywood all the time, right? It uh, is. Movies like Prometheus and The Hobbit. Absolutely. I love that an indie film can go and use this type of camera, this type of equipment. Your yeah. film looks just as good as any other Hollywood film. Thank you, yeah. I mean, that's 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 the beauty of, of filmmaking today, but I also have to give the credit to, to Bogdan, our cinematographer, and, and it's also... It's also in the a little bit in the contract of the film, you know. I think I think the film can feel bigger if you design it in a specific way, you know. Part of the largeness of that story has to do with the universal aspect of the of his journey. Even though it's specific to him, it uh-huh. seems like it's a lot larger because yeah. it's it's a human thing. And exactly. the, the, the those those themes resonate, especially when you see how his decisions affect him in the long run and then how it affects other people that surround him. So exactly. you had that, his, his personal journey has that bigger um, aspect and it, it really, it really ties into a bunch of those big universal themes. I was wondering, could you, would you, would you want to narrow it down to one main message, or do you think it's it's bigger than that? I, you know, I think most films, if they do work, they, they mean different things for for different people. You know, uh, so I I wouldn't narrow it down, but but you know, this film is it's specific in those terms that he's a musician, that he's from Serbia, that he's a taxi driver, and all of those things. I think what's universal, and we can talk about that, is that he's a guy who really doesn't want to let go of his dream. And he needs to make some decisions. You know, if he keeps chasing it, what is the cost of it? And that's something that I think, you know, everybody can relate to. 
especially when they, you know, kind of are past age 30-something in their life. Oh, yeah. You know? Well, that's so, kind of where I am. Yeah, exactly, you know. So, so I think in those terms, to me, the film is, is, is mostly about that, you know? Uh, chasing the dream and what the consequences are, yeah. There's yeah. a key scene later on in the film where Milan's speaking to his girlfriend. Uh-huh. I don't want to spoil anything, but it sort of encapsulates that struggle. That conversation felt real. I mean, it felt it's, it felt to me like it was coming right from his life and right from someone's life. I was just yeah. wondering, you, you, you mentioned earlier how much of it was scripted. Uh-huh. Was that something that really happened? Was that drawn from real life? You know, I think I think most of these scenes, the way the way we scripted them is is I have you know this basic framework of what's gonna happen in the film, and and by the way, it's true that he really did record an American album and he lost the bass player and all of those things, and then even in terms of the camps and the relationships, sometimes I would just write something. And I would give it to him, and I say, "Did something like this happen?" And I think ninety-five percent of the time, he will say, "Oh yeah, yeah, exactly like that, or slightly different," you know. And then, and then we knew each other quite well, so I knew what was happening in his personal life, and I knew him extremely well. So, so I think I wrote those scenes, but knowing quite a bit about him. But also, I think each one of those actors brought a lot of themselves into the movie, you know? I mean, even even the, the, the lady at the end who is the final candidate, I think she, the, that's a lot of her, you know? And an interesting thing happened, well, I'll give you an example. Um, in one of the screenings, um, I wrote in the script that she used to act with James Dean, that she knew him and all of that, right? So, so I wrote a very nice scene, and then in the Q&A, she said to people, and actually I didn't know Jimmy D. You know? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, so it was those kinds of coincidences that, that, that you know, just resonated with these people that, that, that we picked, and they were able to, yeah. to you know, just, just um, really dive into the material and, and characters. So. Please tell me that Michael Dinola was the best man in a wedding. I mean, if we're talking about real-life stories and pulling from experiences... I, I want to believe that's a true story. Uh, <laughs> that was that, that was Michael really um, going on his own and asking if he can if he can just tell a story and try to do something. And I said absolutely. And and then he did it, and you see what the final product is. You know, it's also just just with just with Michael, for example. You know, the way that happened. I've known Michael for many many years. And he wasn't actually the first choice for this part. It was supposed to be somebody else, and then it wasn't working out. And I called Michael, and then we just went to the cab garage, and we did, you know, a couple of rehearsals. And, of course, I was thinking, why did I not call him right away? Because he's also a great saxophone player, you know, as you see in the film. So, so he was just able to channel, again, a lot of his life into the role. And and that's real pleasure when you when you when you have something like that as a director, you know that you just let the actors create, and you just kind of you know shape it here you know a little bit here and there, but you let them create, and actors really like that too. These uh, the other actors and actresses in the film, Yelena Stupyanin, uh-huh. who plays his uh, um, his girlfriend, uh-huh. and. Uh, Eleanor Hutchins, were they friends of yours as well? You know, Eleanor, I I met many, many years ago in one of the auditions. Um, I was going to make a completely different film, and she came in, and, and she just blew me away with, with her looks and, and the way she was. So actually, I kept her uh, headshot on file for probably about eight years, you know? Um, I lived in New York, I went to film school there, I, I made short film docs and, and, you know, different kinds of stuff. And, you know, whenever I would meet interesting actors, I would just put them into, like, a pile of people I want to work with, you know. So, so, so that's how that came about, you know. Um, I was, yeah, so that was Eleanor. 
and then Yelena, I, I, I met her once, but I didn't know her, and she's a, she's a quite well-known actress in Serbia. She was probably most recently in a film called Circus Columbia, which was directed by uh, Dani Stanovic, the um, director who won the for Oscar for the Best Foreign Film, um, No Man's Land. Oh, okay. um, so she has a yeah. So she has a quite a career in in Serbia, and she does work here mostly in New York and a lot of theater work and and that kind of stuff. And um, I just called her up. I said, "Look, this is what I want to do," and she said, "Okay, that's great." Has Milan ever acted? I said, "Absolutely not," <laughs> <laughs> but but I think we can we can do this, you know. So so. Uh, and she was actually extremely important character for me to get right, you know, because there's a lot of characters who come in and, and leave the film and give a lot of flavor and they're fun, but she has a real dramatic purpose that has to be very clear and very strong in order for the film to work. Right, you have to believe both of them, but his, you know, both of those female leads, I guess you could say co-leads or supporting yeah. co-leads... Uh, yeah, are really believable, especially even though I mean they have an interaction late in the film with each other, which uh-huh. seems a little strange at first, but then the way they, that it plays out um, yeah. really makes sense, and especially yeah. given the rest of the film. So, yeah, I, yeah. I like the way that you were able to pull those uh, pull that relationship together and make that bigger yeah. point. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Do you know what your next project is going to be? You know, we... No, we've actually... Um, um, we have... Uh, Bran and I, we have a couple of scripts written that, that we've been trying to to make for years. And there was uh, a film uh, that we were sort of almost in pre-production before we made this. And it also takes place in New York over the course of one night. And I call it like a one-night revenge film. It's about, you know, a female lead, a mother who is looking for a, a guy she believes is responsible for her daughter's death. And it's a very different kind of film. And, and we have one a fabulous actor attached who is an Oscar-nominated guy, but I don't want to mention names because, uh, sure. you know, film, films take a lot of time to, to get made and then people kind of come and go from the from the roster, you know, but it was, it was, it's a, it's a bigger, more complex film in, in those terms, in terms of actors we would be working with and everybody's schedule. So that Love Hunter partially came out of that as well, that kind of frustration of not being able to get an answer from certain actors and money coming in and dropping out. And I sort of said, well, let's forget that. Let's just make this thing that's right in front of us. And that seems like a great film and that we can do by ourselves and it's going to be a lot of fun. And and and, and we can do whatever we, we want and really be free and, and, you know, enjoy our filmmaking process. So that's what we did. Well, uh, tomorrow night is your DC premiere on your film. Um, it is, and I... And I and I see it absolutely. I mean, I see that it's uh, the the weather's been kind of horrible. Um, so I hope I hope it's it's you know. I spoke to the theater today, and they're saying they're they're not changing anything or canceling because they're they're saying it's going to be a pretty bad snowstorm. But we are also showing in San Francisco tomorrow night as well. So I'm going going to be in San Francisco. And Brown is going to be in D.C. So, you know, we kind of, because there's two of us, we can do that. We can split right. the, you know, we can split the work. And if people can't make it to the premiere of uh, your film, they can see it on iTunes, March 17th? Yes, yes March 17th is the iTunes release date, and it's going to be on, on Amazon as well. And then a month later, it's going to come out on DVD, and Kino Warber is, is releasing it, and they do really a really great job with, with these kinds of films. So, so we are really looking forward to that. That's really Excellent. awesome. We want as many people as possible to see this movie. I, I, I think they'll really enjoy it. I know. Really? I did. Thank you. 
Yeah, yeah no, we Thank enjoyed you, it. And definitely when you do your next film, please let us know. Uh, we definitely want to watch it and review it on our show. Yep. We, will. we wish you the best of luck, sir. For sure. Thank you so much for watching, and then thank you for having me on your show. Love Hunter first premiered in New York on November 14th, 2014, and was a New York Times critic's pick, naming it one of the most refreshing New York independent films since Raman Barani's Man Pushcart. Hollywood Reporter described this film as highly enjoyable and a highlight of the it was a highlight of the Warsaw International Film Festival. There's a lot going on with this movie in terms of uh, not only its story but also its cinematography. I know that you were really interested in his uh, his uh, his technical approach. You asked him some technical questions there. I really liked that they were using a digital camera, the Red Epic, in this film. The Red Epic is a uh a fairly inexpensive camera, but it's still very high quality. It was used on films like The Hobbit and Prometheus. It's used a lot in 3D movies because you can get two cameras very close together so you can achieve that uh, 3D eyeball effect. You want the cameras roughly as far apart as a person's eyeballs. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a really nice camera, and he's able to use it on this indie film, very low budget. Uh, so this allows you to get a very high quality uh cinematography level I think uh, the cinematographer was an award winning Romanian filmmaker Bogdan Aptari yeah and he teaches at Columbia University as well oh you know his uh, brother Brane Bala teaches film classes at the University of Hartford in the future when we start teaching lit and film again might be interesting to have these guys come in or at least you know interview them or have a video conference or something with them I think our students would find Nemanja and Brane uh, really appealing guys. I know I did. Came across in that interview as someone that I would like to work with. I'd like to hear a director's commentary from him. On you know, It'd be great if on the DVD Ooh, they're able yeah. to record one and really break down the scenes and talk about the motivations and what they were hoping to accomplish. Yeah, because I'm a big um, visual guy. I... I, I those, those visual aspects in the cinematography appeal to me, and I like how things work as metaphors in the movie. In this case, there were some things going on metaphorically, I think, with the um, scenery in New York City and how it sort of closes in around him. But also, he's a cab driver, and so he's driving this cab, but he's also driven in such a way to, to reach his goals as a singer. But he has to use this as a device. And there are a few scenes where the camera stretches out in front of it, it focuses on the road that stretches out in front of him. I think it's also important that um, where he meets and talks to characters and where he sees different characters and all those things um, are, are working metaphorically to, to tell a bigger story. So it's an interesting, <laughs> so it's a, a pleasant experience to read the film as you're watching it and, that's that's what that's what elevates his film above, um, you know, some other even Hollywood blockbusters that don't have that thoughtful approach. So that's that's part of that's another big reason that I really like the movie. Nemanja talked about how he pictured the songs as being uh, bookends to uh, chapters in this film. I think the cab rides also do that same job. They help divide up the movie quite well. Yeah, I think he had a lot of those conversations, those types of conversations. He talks about how the different actors brought their own personal life stories to the the film, and that sort of gave it that universal aspect, I think. It helped to touch on those bigger themes that uh, that they were trying to reach. Well, they were trying to the cab's also just a metaphor for being an immigrant in America. He's driving this cab, interacting with lots and lots of people, but he never makes a great connection to any one of them. He's always kind of an outsider just there to do a job. It's interesting, um, about two-thirds of the way through the film, he tries to call his girlfriend, and she's asleep and is unable to pick up the phone. He's unable to make that connection back to his love life because he's busy pursuing his dreams, or at least the conduit to his dreams. He has to drive the cab to earn the money to record his music. Well, he does have one close relationship with a, with uh, an American um, 
from America that care his his friend played by Michael Denola. He was one of the the minor characters, but he really seemed to act as sort of a, like spice in a meal because <laughs> he has some of the best lines. He has some of the funniest, uh, you know, conversations with that guy. Um, I, I kind of liken him, uh, this this character played by Michael Denola to um, sort of like a corner piece on the puzzle that is this guy, and that's that's the, the sort of an American piece there. And I think that the women that he you know, has to interact with form those other corner pieces. So I think he's an interesting enigmatic puzzle, but the different characters work with him to give us a better picture of him. Oh, yeah. Um, definitely Michael Danola is there to give Milan someone to talk to and to express how he's feeling, what he's worried about, what he hopes to achieve. In a lot of ways, he's Robin to Milan's Batman. Okay. Rob- Robin was introduced because you have this really quiet character who doesn't say a lot. You need someone to ask him questions to help drive the plot forward. Uh, Michael Danola's character does that. He's the guy that Milan goes to to ask about the wedding ring and how to procure one. So we know he's interested in asking his girlfriend to marry him. This, the Milan character, the Milan personality, out, very talented guy, right? Mm-hmm. I don't mean to be offensive. He's not graced with Hollywood good looks. No. He's not, he's not a typical leading man. And yet... I would argue that the women that he's involved with are above average. I mean, they're very attractive, right? Yeah, Milan's got game. You have to be willing to believe that he's able to do that and that it's not just a conceit of the movie. That it's not just Woody Allen dating Scarlett Johansson, right? Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, that he... Do you think he's able to pull that off? Yeah, no, I do think it works. He's got some sort of innate uh, charisma yeah. that makes it work, and I, I don't know what it is about the charisma. I don't think it's necessarily that he's a musician, because if it was the fact that he was a musician is what gives him the ability to do well in film, we would see a lot more musicians doing well in movies. Right, no, it's that likability factor that happens in the opening scene where he doesn't even play any music. You just find out that he's a musician. Uh, my fiance Tony watched this with me, and she she was like, within five minutes, she knew that she was going to enjoy this guy. She was like, "Yeah, this guy is really good. I really like him. I don't even need to hear him." You know, it, and once he started playing the music for the um, the character, the the first cab ride, mm-hmm. um, he becomes this ingratiating character. And then there's a key exchange between them that s- sort of establishes him as a moral kind of guy. Like he refuses her advances. The Chinese food that she offers to give him is sort of, I don't know. It could be euphemistic for something else. You're talking about the Julianne Moore stunt double. <laughs> yeah. Cause when I first started watching this, I'm like, is that Julianne Moore? Well, <laughs> maybe it's her sister. <laughs> she could certainly pass for Julianne Moore to stand in. Oh yeah. He's yeah. a lighting here. Especially from a distance. Again, a very attractive woman. Yeah. Uh, and she's put out, and she offers him uh, 100 bucks to uh, sing a song. And then once he starts singing the song, you're like, okay, now I'm pulled right in. Well, that scene has to work for you to believe in this film. You have to want Milan to succeed. And if you don't like his music, if you don't think he's talented, you're going to be out of the film. I was also intrigued by the editing of that. You know, we talked about the visual filmmaking aspect of it and how that it's sort of a sparring match between those two characters. You know, she says, if you play a song, it would make me feel better. He does. The camera goes back and forth between those two characters and you begin to see this, how this exchange is going to work. And then you can contrast that with other um, songs later on in the movie and then see how his journey develops and changes. Yeah, definitely in that scene, the camera is not objective to the scene because you're right next to Milan. You can see his shoulder as he's singing, and yeah. you can see the Julianne Moore stunt double. 
and then the camera will cut to over the top of her shoulder. So you, you see the scene unfolding the way they do. Oh, her, it's played by Annika Peterson. And, uh, she, I mean, it, their exchange is sort of like a, de- a defining moment for that character. Now you contrast that with how he behaves towards other women later on, and then he becomes a, a, a more problematic character, I think. Oh, are you talking about... Well, I don't know. Maybe we should save it for spoilers. Uh, okay, we'll save it. We can save it for spoilers. Because uh, I do want to do a little bit of spoilers here. Well, before we do that, yeah. um, Milan's basically playing a version of himself. Okay. Do you think he has a future as an actor? Could he do other roles? I'd like to think so, because I'd like to see him in other movies. Okay. Do you think he can be a leading man in another movie, or would he be better as a character actor? For example, I really like Michael Danola. I think he's a character actor. I, I don't kinda, see him carrying a film all on his own. I think I remember seeing him in Boardwalk Empire. When I when I went when I checked out his IMDb page, it said that he was a gangster number two or something. Boardwalk Empire, but I remember like when I was watching the film, I recognized that guy. So he's like one of those guys where you go, I recognize that guy. Hey, yeah. So character actor, you're right. Um, Milan. Hmm. I, I, if given the right role and the right things to say and do, I don't think he needs to just be a musician. I don't think he, I think he could play something better than that. I think he has a little, a little something else going on. No, I agree. I, I could see him in like TV shows. He could be the wacky neighbor. I wonder where. I'm not saying that he has to be stereotypical wacky foreigner. But he could just have his own um, quirks. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to picture him in other things. I, I, I see him as totally original, though. I see him as a totally original thing. So I would like to see him in something where he's not fitting into any kind of stereotype. I wish not, not the Serbian American stereotype, or the or the cab driver, or the wacky neighbor, but something. You know, I'd like to see. I don't know. I think he might have a little touch of evil in him. Oh, so you think he could be in Nemanja's uh, revenge film that they're planning on doing? That would be pretty cool. I wish we had asked him if, uh, or if he was planning on using Milan again. Well, I don't know. I, I think Milan can like set his own. I mean, he might have his own. Maybe he doesn't want to be in a movie again. I don't know. Well, that's the whole thing. We don't know what their working relationship is. I think that they're still pretty close. Yeah, but I mean, do they want to continue doing projects together, or was it? Yeah, this was great. I don't it's, know. If any of the listeners know, they could they could let us know. That I'd love to find out. Anything else before we get into spoilers? Uh, I th- no, I think we can save it for spoilers. Just, I got some questions about the end. All right, about the ending. Yeah. yeah. The man that hath no music in himself, nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. I don't want to spoil the party, so I'll go. Oh. Well, I have, I have a question. Oh, okay. fine. I don't know if it's about the ending, though. It's in the middle. Do you think he slept with that girl? With oh. Tim's roommate? You asked me this two weeks ago, and I told you no, and then I had to go back and rewatch the film, get ready for the interview. And I think he does. Well, the film is a little ambiguous. Yeah. It's sort of a throwaway line. When he's walking with Kim through the streets of New York, I think they're both eating pizza. And Milan says he's going to ask his girlfriend to marry him. And she goes, my roommate? He's like, no, 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 not her. And she's like, but he goes, yeah, I feel bad about that. Yeah. It's a contrast with the character that he established early in the movie when he didn't, when he refused these advances of the of the first woman possibly the only time in the film he's unlikable he's a contradiction okay. I don't know if he loses likability it makes him more human I mean but they get him to play a song rather quickly after that so that really? he, yeah you don't want to linger on it within about a minute and a half he's playing another song pulling us back in. So in case we did have any bad feelings, we get to liken the guy again, and we remember why we liked him in the first place. Okay. I, I, I'll, I'll have to go with you on that. I don't remember them. Him. Was this the song that he played for Kim? 
they play together. Or no, no, they were playing together. Yeah, he plays the song um, in the air street? guitar. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's one of the, the highlights of the movie. I think. I mean, I, there's there's other things going on in that scene, and then in prior scenes where the the city is really present amongst these characters. And I know it's a trope to say and cliche to suggest that the the city is a character, but the city is very present. And I wonder if in the sound design they decided to leave in the sounds of the cars that surround them or highlight those sounds to bring that city more into that story. At least it works that way. I like the little the little touches in the sound design, which you know yeah. may have a bigger metaphorical meaning. Perhaps they don't. At least for me, it allowed me to to experience the city along with these guys, and it made me attached to these characters a little bit stronger. That's why I'd love to hear a director's commentary. Are these just happy accidents that occur? Well, he mentions there are some happy accidents, but. And that's where going through and watching or listening to him as the scenes play out. You know, we, oh, we had attended for the scene to go on longer, but in the editing room we cut it here. Or yeah, this car just went by at this moment, and that honk is perfectly timed. Yeah, uh, those are interesting things. I was listening to an interview with uh, the Godfather director uh, Francis Ford Coppola, and he talked about the scene where Luca Brasi is thanking the Don for inviting him to the wedding. The actual actor sucked given that performance. So Coppola followed him around set, recording him, practicing the lines and sucking at it, and through careful editing, it makes the guy seem really nervous. Well, he didn't realize that he was being filmed? It's a happy accident that happens on set, and I think that's a mark of a good director. So, You said you had something about the ending? Do you think Milan is happy at the end? I don't know if the song would suggest that he's happy. He's achieving, yeah, he's achieving his dream. He's achieving his dream. But does that, does that result in satisfaction? Yeah, because the movie ended, and I kind of sat there, and I went, I don't know how to feel about that. I has really he, didn't. Has he plucked a poison rose? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think by, I think Layla, his girlfriend, doesn't know enough about his what what really truly motivates him. I mean, he defines himself by his music or through his music. And when she can't even think of a chorus, <laughs> then I mean, obviously he made the right choice by not being with her. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Kim may have just been a pipe pipe dream, or, or not even that. Like like they don't necessarily share common goals either mm-hmm. because she's not as much a musician as he is so but he's clearly able to attract women so don't we figure there'll be another one down the line so is he only able to be alone i don't know i would have liked the credits to roll and i mean i know i'm you know going back and rewriting the movie and all that and but after the credits roll you just hear a voice go hello chinese takeout <laughs> and you hear Milan go, I'd like to order, and then it just fades out. All right. <laughs> uh, and then you have the possibility of a sequel. I think that the, 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 the I don't. Would you want to come back in 10 years and see where Milan is with his life? Because I am interested to see where he goes from here as a person. Milan, the character, is different than. The, the character in the movie is different than the real story. I think he really cut his album with um, with a group, mm-hmm. with a, a, a group of uh, musicians, and he didn't need to be a solo artist. Um, so I think that that's telling a story that can probably end right there. I don't need to find out what happens to Milan Moomin, the character, because the arc of the story is satisfying and complete. I don't need a coda at the end. That change that could change things, or I mean, I know it adds another level of meaning. It could add another level of meaning, but I think that those guys communicated what they wanted to about that person in that situation, and the Milan Moomin character is is different than the Milan Moomin of um, reality, yeah. the musician. So, I was satisfied with his story. 
I, I was too. In the movie, I thought it was a complete story. That's fine. But the musician, I'm interested in seeing where do you go from here. You've done what you've set out to do. What are your next set of goals? I'm satisfied with the ambiguity. Yeah, see, this is why I'm not a filmmaker, because I know what I want. I know what my answer is. I know what I want to tell the audience the answer is. I'm not um, strong enough in character to have an ambiguous ending. Just because you are a character doesn't mean that you have character. (laughs) I like that. No, where this movie works is that after you watch it, you want to talk about it with someone. I think I called you up right after I watched it, and we talked about things. The ending has definitely stayed with me. I've come back and thought about it quite a few times when I was preparing for this podcast. I watched that ending quite a bit. People that I've talked to have told me that they want to watch it based on the things that we've talked about, or that I've told them about the movie. So the movie itself draws people to it. So the more people that get to see it, the 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 better off the whole world will be. <laughs> I think maybe that's a little too grandiose. No, but this is definitely a movie to go watch with someone and then to go and discuss it. You're going to want to talk about this movie after you watch it. Well, you might not have an opportunity to go watch it in the theater because it's not going to be a theatrical release as much. But you should check it out on iTunes. And when you're on iTunes, you can give us a review and give us a little bit of feedback on the show. The movie will also be available on DVD April 15th, so get ready to rent from Redbox or get on Netflix. Right before you, right after you pay your taxes. Some of us. <laughs> hey. I like my interest-free you. loan to how, the government every year. How dare you? No, I have to pay my taxes. I won't be getting any money back. But uh, If you watch the movie, we'd love to hear what you think. You know the email. You know the Twitter address. Don't need to repeat it. All right, so for Mr. Two Frames over there. It's been a pleasure as always. I'm the L-Train. Pox that vote of everybody. There be dragons. You know, your uh, lips were moving when I, <laughs> you were you were saying what I was saying, like a ventriloquist or something. Dance, puppet, dance. <laughs>